in the big rock candy mountains You never change your socks And the little streams of alcohol Come a-trickling down the rocks The brakemen have to tip their hats And the railroad bulls are blind There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too You can paddle all around them in a big canoe In the big rock candy mountains In the big rock candy mountains The jails are made of tin And you can walk right out again As soon as you are in There ain't no short-handled shovels No axes, saws, or picks I'm a-goin' to stay where you sleep all day Where they hung the Turk that invented work In the Big Rock Candy Mountains This is Our American Stories And now, Jesse Edwards brings us the story of a desk Unlike any story of a desk that you've ever heard before August 24th, 1814 marks one of the darkest episodes in the War of 1812. On that day, British troops marched on Washington, burning public buildings, including the U.S. Capitol. Among the losses in the Capitol were the Senate chamber and all its contents. Reconstruction took until 1819, and when senators again took their seats in the rebuilt chamber, they occupied 48 new desks and chairs custom-made by Thomas Constantine, a New York cabinet maker. Constantine was paid $34 for each Senate desk and $46 for each chair. Today, all of Constantine's desks remain in use in the current Senate chamber, although his chairs have been replaced. As new states entered the Union, desks of similar design were ordered from other cabinet makers, although the four newest desks, those constructed for Alaska and Hawaii, were built in the Senate cabinet shop. There are noticeable differences in shape and dimension among the 100 desks. These result from the original semicircular arrangement in the old Senate chamber. A desk's shape reflected its position in the room. Aisle desks were narrow and angled, while the center was wider and square. If the oldest were arranged in the original layout, it is believed they would have formed a perfect semicircle. Many traditions pertaining to the Senate desks have evolved over the years, and each new class of senators that occupies them contributes to their heritage. Through careful documentation and diligent preservation, this rich legacy will be maintained for future generations. But there is one Senate desk unlike any of the others, and you wouldn't know by looking at it. Next to the eastern door to the Senate chamber, the first desk on the right in the last row of desks they call it the candy desk it all began on the republican side of the senate in 1968 when senator george murphy of california who had an insatiable appetite for candy started stocking his desk full of sweets that he would often share with his fellow senators The tradition has continued ever since and has even become a point of pride for the select few who preside over the candy desk. Senators John McCain and Rick Santorum have both sat in the coveted desk. The current and 16th tenant of the candy desk is Republican Senator from Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey. Since Hershey's chocolate is based in Pennsylvania, Senator Toomey gladly shares candy from his home state. Well, I am happy to be carrying on a great Senate tradition. It's the tradition of the Senate candy desk. For 50 years now, one desk on the Republican side of the aisle, the first desk that senators pass as they walk into the chamber, 
has been the official candy desk. And there's no state that should occupy this desk more than Pennsylvania because we are America's leading confectioner. We have more candy companies than any other state. We have 10,000 people working in this industry, and it's just a terrific industry, and I happen to really like Three Musketeer bars, so I'm delighted to play this role. Sugar. strange thing is, according to Senate ethics rules, Senator Toomey and anyone who bears the responsibility as keeper of the candy desk is required to place only candy that originates from their home state into said candy desk. You see, every candy company in the world would love to have their candy inside the Senate candy desk. Think of it as a form of lobbying, because that's exactly what it is. Now, you might think that keeping a desk full of candy wouldn't be this complicated. But the rule states that senators are not allowed to accept donations of more than $100 per year. The loophole is that this rule does not apply if the donations are manufactured in that senator's home state. Now get this. If you wanted to add your brand of candy to the already existing pool of U.S. Senate Candy Desk Candy, your company and all the other companies that want to donate must first be represented by the National Confectioners Association. The trade organization that advances, protects, and promotes chocolate, candy, gum, and mints, and the companies that make up the $35 billion U.S. confectionery industry. The Democrats have also had a candy desk since at least 1985, a roll top located on the front wall belonging to the United States Senate Democratic Conference Secretary Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, is also filled with sweets. However, the Democrats manage their candy desk on the honor system. Not to get all political, but it's interesting to see the way each side of the aisle chooses to distribute candy differently. On the right, candy companies pay lobbyists to help get their sweet sugary product into the gaping maws of the Senate body. On the left, it's a communal dish where people can pay as they wish. On the right, they find loopholes around ethics rules in order to maximize the quantity and quality of candy that makes it into the desk. On the left, the most popular candy was the plain old Hershey's Kiss. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Hershey's Kisses are one of the most popular brands of candies in the U.S. with more than 60 million produced each day at the company's two factories. The Hershey Company ships roughly 100 pounds of chocolate and other candy four times a year to fill the candy desk. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great story, Jesse. I know a lot about Congress and American history. I did not know anything about the candy desk, and I feel like a really terrible boss. (laughs) And so he did a quick poll. The Our American Stories candy desk will be stocked with, well, Sour Patch Kids for Faith, Jelly Bellies for Greg, Peanut butter M&M's for Stan, huh? Skittles for Jesse. Good and plenty for me. Well, for my wife, when she comes in occasionally, some Snickers, the little baby Snickers. And for Reagan, my beautiful daughter, Kit Kats. And of course, Alex, well, he's not here. This is Our American Stories. The story of the candy desk.
Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez loves to regularly bring us great stories about human freedom and what can happen when it's unleashed in a free economy. And occasionally, what happens when governments get in the way. And today's story is about human freedom and potential in a place where you might least expect it. Here's Alex. You're about to hear the voices of five young siblings from Syria. My mom was tall and thin. Her face was tall. She loved us and used to spoil us a lot and stuff. All of my mom's food was delicious. They brought her body to us after she was shot by the Air Force from the airplanes. We started crying over her. We were crazy about her. My dad died because he inhaled the gas of a bombing at the beginning of the revolution. He killed them. The he is Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator who has murdered his own country's civilians, innocent civilians, in its civil war. Like three million other Syrians, these five young children fled their own country to fight for their survival. Another eight million have been internally displaced to a different part of their country. Together, that's almost half of Syria's population who has been forced out of their hometowns. And they're the lucky ones. 300,000 will never see their hometowns again, losing their lives in the conflict. Neighboring country Jordan hosts over 600,000 of the refugees, almost one-tenth of their native population. These five children you heard from are among the 430,000 refugees that have passed through just one of Jordan's refugee camps, called Zatari, just six miles from Syria's southern border. At one point, it was the largest refugee camp in the world, and it's Jordan's fourth largest city, a refugee camp, the fourth largest city. 85,000 refugees live there today. But no one wanted to take in these five children because there's five of them until one woman heard about them and her husband said to bring them to their makeshift home in the refugee camp. Can you believe that? Adopting when you're in a refugee camp. Here she is speaking to Vice. The small children are a bit more accepting of the situation. Hanin, the eldest, she's still suffering from this problem. She saw her mother when she was shot. She can't forget that scene. Sometimes at any time at night when you come in, you'll find her awake. She doesn't sleep. She has non-stop anxiety, nervousness. Like many refugee camps of the past and present, they're filled with gut-wrenching stories like this. But unlike all others, at Zatari, there's something else going on too. Like a lot of something else. Like a guy who blings up bicycles in a refugee camp. 
a pizza shop in a refugee camp. And my favorite one of all, a bridal store in a refugee camp. Women used to come here, say they have weddings, and they can't find dresses. So we got two dresses for rent, and it worked out well. We're listening to its owner, a gentleman named Ataf, speaking through a translator. We have two weddings a day, and there are people who come from outside the camp to rent dresses because it's cheaper here. Wait a minute! Non-refugees come to a refugee camp to purchase something because it's better than what they can get anywhere else? If that is not the definition of crazy, I do not know what is. Things are so crazy at the Zattery refugee camp. Over 3,000 businesses generating $13 million of economic activity a month that they even have their own Champs-Élysées. It's what the refugees jokingly and quite seriously call their main thoroughfare, a lively one reminiscent of the famous French shopping street, the Champs-Élysées. And even though the French one is just a tad bit more posh, at their core, they're the same. Entrepreneurs busting their butts to solve problems for other people. I went to the camp and noticed that everybody needed water a lot. And so I decided to open this store. Thank God the choice was right. These are the tanks where we keep the water before desalination. It cleans it from the sand, dust, and anything else. All of the debris is removed from this filter. And this entrepreneur's water is cleaner than the water provided by the United Nations. And he's a refugee. I was a prisoner. When I was done with the detention, I came here. At the beginning of the camp, the UN provided every meal to the refugees. But today, they provide a voucher that's loaded onto a debit card powered by the American company MasterCard that enables them to have more control over their lives. We are very happy with the vouchers. Before, all we had was bulgur, lentils, rice, and canned food. It was limited. Now, we can have yogurt, cheese, sardines, tuna, and other foods we didn't have before. The change respected their dignity as unique and free individuals at a time when they felt least free in their lives. And it enabled an even greater dignity. The vouchers empowered the refugees to spend the money anywhere, fueling the creation of businesses to provide for their needs and desires, which fueled employment opportunities at these businesses and fueled the irreplaceable dignity that comes from work that the refugees had been so desperate to have back. Some people say the camp was better in the old days when they used to distribute meals, but I think that now is better. We're listening to a barber, speaking through a translator, whose shop is on their version of the Champs-Élysées. 
we can open our own shops. And the fact that this is possible is good for us. Now we're living like anyone else. The UN chief of the camp, Killian Kleinschmidt, has noted that today there's more perfume for sale. There's more lingerie. I feel underdressed when I go to the supermarket. People dress up to go shopping here. In fact, his UN has now concluded that helping refugees find jobs and start enterprises like the ones you've heard from is cheaper than humanitarian assistance. As long as these businesses continue to provide value to customers, they continue to generate profits that provide for the livelihood of their employees. A self-sustaining and never-ending engine of vitality, unlike humanitarian assistance that requires constant feeding from all of us and from the governments who we fund. In addition to the vibrant business life, there's another inescapable sign that the refugees have hope in the future. Babies. A lot of babies. Any moment in Sa'atu camp, uh, about 2,000 women are pregnant. And the refugees' birth rate is higher than that of Jordan. And not a single mother has died in pregnancy, despite the rather atypical birthing environments. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Beautiful job, Alex. What a story. And again, human freedom. What happens when we unleash it anywhere in this country, in this world? And we love bringing you stories like these. The Champs-Élysées in a refugee camp. I just can't get over that. It's fantastic. This is Our American Stories, and you can hear all of these stories, all that we do, on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Post your stories, if you find any, about such things, about human freedom, about liberty, about your experience of friends or something you read at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special Fathers series, which tells the stories of fathers with special needs children, and it's brought to us by the Special Fathers Network, which matches up longtime fathers who have children with special needs with brand new ones for fellowship and mutual counseling on their shared journey of ups and downs. And you can learn more about it at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. Org. And now, here's our own Joey Cortez with this edition. Skip Giannopoulos is happily married with four daughters. Yes, it is possible to be happily married with four daughters, at least when you have a sense of humor, like Skip's. As I like to say, I'm a minority in a sorority. <laughs> <laughs> a sense of humor that Skip would need when he would have... Not one, but two daughters with special needs. 
One daughter, Jessica, with Down syndrome, and another daughter, Cassidy, with Down syndrome and autism. Particularly with Down syndrome, there's no predisposition to having a second child with Down syndrome once you have your first. So literally, it is like lightning striking twice. In fact, um, thought a little bit about buying lottery tickets after that. But, uh, <laughs> You know, it was very unlikely to have two two kids with Down syndrome. In fact, we don't know any other families that are in, in our spot naturally. And Skip's initial reaction to learning that his daughter Jessica had Down syndrome was not great. We found out about her diagnosis in the hospital delivery room. Wow. And it was shocking. Um, you know, I remember uh, just thinking, you know, being in the financial planning industry and, and business, thinking, uh, of course, jumping way out into the future, thinking about what retirement was going to be like with a uh, with a adult child living with us. And, um, you know, really probably came to some very negative pictures of what my life was going to be like. Um, and I would say it was a it was a dark spot to be in. Did not have any people that I could uh, reach out to that had been there before I was. So felt a little bit alone. And um, I remember I remember one of the first phone calls I made uh, was to my brother. And um, you know his comment was, "I guess there's going to be no more short bus jokes in our family." <laughs> you know, it just goes to show a little bit of how we. You know, we just really did not have any real connection with special needs uh, community. And that would certainly change. Skip and his wife, Gail, would become one of the four founding couples of Gigi's Playhouse, a place of play in suburban Chicago for one girl named Gigi and her friends, who also happened to have Down syndrome. Gigi is uh, my daughter Jessica's uh, best friend. Uh, they do quite a bit together, and um, Gigi and Jessica are about six months apart. So Gigi's Playhouse has kind of grown up right alongside of our Jessica and, and certainly Gigi uh, as well. But uh, Gigi's Playhouse is a resource center for uh, kids and families of kids with special needs, and particularly with Down syndrome. As time has gone on, it's expanded um, in terms of the program offering, and it's now uh, expanded quite a bit in terms of its footprint as well. From one location in Hoffman Estates, it's grown to about 30 locations all across the country and even one location in Mexico as well. And just like that, from no participation in the special needs community to making an impact worldwide. But... What kind of impact does Gigi's Playhouse really have? Well, according to Skip, one of the most difficult things for parents who are pregnant with a child who has special needs is that the medical community almost solely focuses on the negatives. So Gigi's Playhouse fills in the gaps by reaching out to those in the medical community and providing them with materials so that they can better comfort and encourage their patients who have children with special needs. An important mission to help prevent disturbing interactions, such as the one that Skip and his wife Gail had with their doctor when pregnant with their second daughter, 
who has special needs. We knew uh, in advance about our second daughter, Cassidy's diagnosis. And uh, notwithstanding the fact that the doctors knew we already had a daughter with Down syndrome, they sent us to a, uh, a, um, a genealogist, I believe is the, the, the terminology, and he is literally asking us if we want to terminate the pregnancy. And I'm thinking to myself, you know we already have a daughter with Down syndrome. Would you, why are you even asking the question? And, and secondly, you know, it, it also implied, you know, do we regret having our first daughter? And we're hoping that the message to the medical community, this positive message, and that kids with Down syndrome, you know, have value and that they can bring uh, an element of love and, 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 and care and uh, happiness into a family that, you know, might, might not otherwise exist. We're hoping that that message is going to override some of the things that they have really been trained up on. And when you think about a met, the medical training process, really all they see are the medical negatives that come out of a diagnosis like that. Half of all kids with Down syndrome are born with a hole in their heart. So half of the kids that we know have a big scar on their chest and have gone through open heart surgery uh, multiple times. And, you know, as a medical provider, that's, I guess, seen as a negative. And they're just not seeing the positive side of the coin. So what is the positive side of the coin? Our 16-year-old daughter, Stephanie, there are days where she'll come home and she'll barely acknowledge my presence. <laughs> she will storm right to her room, and, you know, that might be the last we see of her for, uh, for a few hours anyways until she needs something or gets hungry. Right. <laughs> so contrasting that to our kids with special needs, you know, Cassidy was still uh, in fifth grade and is one to, um, you know, I could be sitting watching uh, something on TV and she'll come right up to the couch and cuddle up and, uh, you know, have a conversation with me. So, I mean, it's, you know, there are just times where the kids with special needs are, it's just such a refreshing perspective to have. And when you think about it, even going forward, you know, how would it be going through life where, and this is, I would say, typical of kids with, with Down syndrome or people with Down syndrome, you know, most, most people with Down syndrome don't care a whole lot about money. They don't care a whole lot about trying to impress you. Uh, they want you to be happy. They want to love you. And, you know, those are, those are the important things for people with Down syndrome. I would say typically, I realize I'm overgeneralizing, but, you know, we can all learn a lot from that. We can all try to be more like that, quite frankly. And um, hoping a little bit of that rubs off on my 16-year-old. And in the end, we have a father, Skip, who is very proud. Jessica has just done such a great job in terms of being independent. So think about this for a, this would, would have been last year in eighth grade, even for summer school this year. She would tell us when she's ready to go to bed. She would shower. She would brush her teeth. She would put herself to bed. I would, I would go pray with her. She would set her alarm clock, she would get up on her own, have breakfast on her own, get dressed on her own, and then be ready and waiting for the school bus. She'd pack her own backpack, and it's like, you know, there's probably not a lot of typical kids 
that do that as well as Jessica did. And thanks for that work, Joey. What a great story. And thanks to all the work that the Special Fathers Network does. And you can learn more and sign up to be a part of this fantastic network at 21stCenturyDads.org. That's 21stCenturyDads.org. Skip Giannopoulos' story, so many families in this country's story, here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The Old Man in the Sea is a short novel written by Ernest Hemingway in 1951 in Cuba and published in 52. It was the last major work of fiction by Hemingway. It's one of his most famous works, and it tells the story of Santiago, an aging fisherman who struggles with a giant marlin far out in the Gulf Stream off the coast of Cuba. We join Santiago at the climax of this American classic, with a dramatic reading by the great Charlton Heston. For an hour, the old man had been seeing black spots before his eyes, and the sweat salted his eyes and salted the cut over his eye and on his forehead. He was not afraid of the black spots. They were normal at the tension that he was pulling on the line. Twice, though, he had felt faint and dizzy, and that had worried him. I could not fail myself and die on a fish like this, he said. Now that I have him coming so beautifully, God help me endure. I'll say a hundred Our Fathers and a hundred Hail Marys, but I cannot say them now. Consider them said, he thought. I'll say them later. Just then he felt a sudden banging and jerking on the line he held with his two hands. It was sharp and hard-feeling and heavy. He's hitting the wire leader with his spear, he thought. That was bound to come. He had to do that. It may make him jump, though. I would rather he stayed circling now. The jumps were necessary for him to take air. But after that, each one can widen the opening of the hook wound, and he can throw the hook. Don't jump, fish, he said. Don't jump. The fish hit the wire several times more, and each time he shook his head, the old man gave up a little line. I must hold his pain where it is, he thought. Mine does not matter. I can control mine but his pain could drive him mad. After a while, the fish stopped beating at the wire and started circling slowly again. The old man was gaining line steadily now, but he felt faint again. He lifted some seawater with his left hand and put it on his head. Then he put more on and rubbed the back of his neck. I have no cramps, he said. He'll be up soon, and I can last. You have to last. Don't even speak of it. He kneeled against the bow and for a moment slipped the line over his back again. I'll rest now when he goes out in the circle and then stand up and work on him when he comes in, he decided. It was a great temptation to rest in the bow and let the fish make one circle by himself without recovering any line. But when the strain showed the fish had turned to come toward the boat, the old man rose to his feet and started the pivoting and the weaving pulling that brought in all the line he gained. I'm tireder than I have ever been, he thought. 
And now the trade wind is rising. But that will be good to take him in with. I need that badly. I'll rest on the next turn as he goes out, he said. I feel much better. Then in two or three turns more, I will have him. His straw hat was far in the back of his head, and he sank down into the bow with a pull of the line as he felt the fish turn. You work now, fish, he thought. I'll take you at the turn. The sea had risen considerably, but it was a fair-weather breeze, and he had to have it to get home. I'll just steer south and west, he said. A man is never lost at sea, and it is a long island. It was on the third turn that he saw the fish first. He saw him first as a dark shadow that took so long to pass under the boat that he could not believe its length. No, he said. He can't be that big. But he was that big. And at the end of this circle, he came to the surface only 30 yards away. And the man saw his tail out of water. It was higher than a big scythe blade and a very pale lavender above the dark blue water. It raked back, and as the fish swam just below the surface, the old man could see his huge bulk and the purple stripes that banded him. His dorsal fin was down, and his huge pectorals were spread wide. On this circle, the old man could see the fish's eye and the two gray sucking fish that swam around him. Sometimes they attached themselves to him. Sometimes they darted off. Sometimes they would swim easily in his shadow. They were each over three feet long, and when they swam fast, they lashed their whole bodies like eels. The old man was sweating now, but from something else besides the sun. On each calm, placid turn the fish made, he was gaining line, and he was sure that in two turns more he would have a chance to get the harpoon in. But I must get him close, 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 he thought. I mustn't try for the head, I must get the heart. Be calm and strong, old man, he said. On the next circle, the fish's back was out, but he was a little too far from the boat. On the next circle, he was still too far away, but he was higher out of water, and the old man was sure that by gaining some more line, he could have him alongside. He'd rigged his harpoon long before, and its coil of light rope was in a round basket, and the end was made fast to the bit in the bow. The fish was coming in on his circle now, calm and beautiful looking, and only his great tail moving. The old man pulled on him all that he could to bring him closer. For just a moment, the fish turned a little on his side. Then he straightened himself and began another circle. I moved him, the old man said. I moved him then. He felt faint again now, but he held on the great fish all the strain that he could. I moved him, he thought. Maybe this time I can get him over. Pull hands, he thought. Hold up, legs. Last for me, head, last for me. You never went. This time I'll pull him over. But when he put all of his effort on, starting it well out before the fish came alongside and pulling with all his strength, the fish pulled partway over and then righted himself and swam away. Ish, the old man said. Fish, you're going to have to die anyway. You have to kill me, too. That way nothing is accomplished, he thought. His mouth was too dry to speak, but he could not reach for the water now. I must get him alongside this time, he thought. I'm not good for many more turns. Yes, you are, he told himself. You're good forever. On the next turn, he nearly had him. 
But again the fish righted himself and swam slowly away. You are killing me, fish, the old man thought. But you have a right to. Never have I seen a greater or more beautiful or a calmer or more noble thing than you, brother. Come on and kill me. I do not care who kills who. Now, you're getting confused in the head, he thought. You must keep your head clear. Keep your head clear and know how to suffer like a man. Or a fish, he thought. Clear up, head, he said in a voice he could hardly hear. Clear up. Twice more it was the same on the turns. I do not know, the old man thought. He'd been in the point of feeling himself go each time. I do not know, but I will try it once more. He tried it once more, and he felt himself going when he turned the fish. The fish righted himself and swam off again slowly with a great tail weaving in the air. I'll try it again, the old man promised, although his hands were mushy now, and he could only see well in flashes. He tried it again, and it was the same. So he thought, and he felt himself going before he started, I will try it once again. He took all his pain and what was left of his strength and his long-gone pride, and he put it against the fish's agony, and the fish came over onto his side and swam gently on his side, his bill almost touching the planking of the skiff, and started to pass the boat, long, deep, wide, silver, and barred with purple, and interminable in the water. The old man dropped the line and put his foot on it, and lifted the harpoon as high as he could, and drove it down with all his strength, and more strength he had just summoned, into the fish's side just behind the great chest fin that rose high in the air to the altitude of the man's chest. He felt the iron go in, and he leaned on it and drove it further, and then pushed all his weight after it. Then the fish came alive with his death in him, and rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and width and all his power and his beauty. He seemed to hang in the air above the old man in the skiff. Then he fell into the water with a crash that sent spray over the old man and over all of the skiff. The old man felt faint and sick. And he could not see well, but he cleared the harpoon line and let it run slowly through his raw hands. And when he could see, he saw the fish was on his back with his silver belly up. The shaft of the harpoon was projecting at an angle from the fish's shoulder, and the sea was discoloring with the red of the blood from his heart. First it was dark as a shoal in the blue water that was more than a mile deep. And it spread like a cloud. The fish was silvery and still and floated with the waves. The old man looked carefully in the glimpse of vision that he had. Then he took two turns of the harpoon line around the bit in the bow and laid his head on his hands. Keep my head clear, he said against the wood of the bow. I am a tired old man. But I have killed this fish, which is my brother. 
And now I must do the slave work. And what a reading of a great, great American novel, Charlton Heston, the late, great Charlton Heston. In 1953, The Old Man in the Sea was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and it was cited by the Nobel Committee as contributing to their awarding of the Nobel Prize in Literature to Hemingway in 1954. The Old Man in the Sea, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and no matter how many times we've heard the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's still all too amazing to believe heroics at Lake Placid in 1980, we want to hear it all over again. This adventure seems even more unlikely now than it felt decades ago. Whether this is your first or most recent time hearing the story, we promise to raise the requisite lumps in the requisite throats, adding new details to an all-too-familiar picture. It was more than a hockey game. It was us against them. It was freedom versus communism. Nobody gave us a hope in Halloween. It was a sliver of the Cold War played out on a sheet of ice. Here you have a bunch of fresh-faced college kids taking on the big bad Soviet bear in the United States in the Olympics the confluence of events was so extraordinary it can never happen again nobody paid attention to what Americans said in the world anymore our hostages had been taken and we couldn't get them back the Red Army went into Afghanistan we couldn't get them out it might have been the all-time low point for American public self-esteem. Who knew that these kids would become the vehicle for making people feel excited and proud again to wave a flag? It was a miracle. David slew Goliath. It was the greatest sports moment of the 20th century. No one could know how important one game could possibly be to a nation that seemed to be losing its way. Certainly not in 1979, when a weary America heard from its embattled leader, who told us we were a nation in crisis. It is a crisis of confidence. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. President Carter was seen as a an expression of the American self-doubt and lack of self-confidence of the mid-70s. Here's Vice President under Jimmy Carter, Walter Mondale. Our public support was eroding rapidly. You could feel it when you're out with people, when you're giving speeches, when you're shaking hands. America, I think, began to wonder whether we'd lost our edge. In the 20 years since winning the gold medal at the 1960 Olympics, American teams had become increasingly unable to compete with the dominant Europeans especially the Soviet Union, whose players were amateurs 
in name only. The goal was to avoid being embarrassed at home. So in July of 1979, the best amateur players in the country were invited to try out for the 1980 Olympic team. They invited us all to Colorado Springs and they divided us up into four teams. Basically, Eastern guys, Michigan guys, Minnesota guys, and an at-large team. Over the course of 10 days in Colorado Springs, those four teams played a round robin. It was a nerve-wracking situation. It was a pressure-packed situation. And as that tournament went on, it was being evaluated by Herb Brooks. Minnesota native Herb Brooks never went to charm school. He was abrasive and intense. He was also the best college hockey coach in the country at the University of Minnesota. People were a little afraid of him. He'd always been considered kind of an outsider, had his own way of thinking, his own way of doing things. And he already had a history with the Olympic team. As a University of Minnesota player, Brooks thought he had made the team in 1960. He was even in the team picture. But at the last minute, Coach Jack Riley added a new player to the roster, and someone had to go. The someone was Herb Brooks, cut just one day before the team left for the games. A crushed Herb Brooks immediately called his father to vent. So I called and said, Dad, this whole thing is bullshit. Eastern coach halls, fixed all politics, and I went through the whole thing. And finally, my father said, you're done. I said, yeah. I said, well, I keep your bleeping. Keep your mouth shut. I heard enough of that. You get back and thank the coach, get your ass in the locker room, wish your teammates well, and get your ass home. How's my father? Got the rest of his soul. I said, yes, sir. So I came home. I'm watching this thing unfold. The Americans got hot. And they won our country's first gold medal. I'm watching this thing on TV. My father looked over at me. He says, looks like the coach cut the right guy, didn't he? Just bang. That left unfinished business in Herb Brooks's life. He had something to prove. He was on a mission. A mission to shake American hockey out of its slumber. First, Brooks had to trim the roster from 80 to 26. Tough part would be getting it down to 20 before the opening ceremonies. Behind the Iron Curtain, the Soviets were the best hockey team in the world, perhaps the strongest ever assembled, and everybody knew it. Vladislav Tridiak grew up outside Moscow and became immersed in the Soviet's communist sports machine at a young age. He developed into perhaps the greatest goaltender to ever play and starred on the Soviet national team for over 15 years. Vladislav Tretiak. You score on Tretiak, keep the puck. It doesn't happen often. By 1980, Boris Mikhailov was already a 10-year veteran of the Soviet national team and the most recognizable face in international hockey. Here's Boris Mikhailov. Sport was tied with politics, and any victory had big political undertones, especially during the Olympic Games, when the general secretary and everybody else was worried about how we would represent our country. Our task was only to place first. They were government-sponsored magicians on ice. The goal was to win for the motherland and to show the world that Karl Marx had it right. They played hockey the way we played basketball, with the same kind of control of the puck, the same kind of intricate offensive patterns, and of course the presence and goal of Tretiak. How could you beat him? Back in the U.S., Herb Brooks had been contemplating that same question for years. After all, 
How many times does one have to get hit with the same hammer and sickle before they learn? We, uh, we also need to change the way we play the game. North American hockey had forever been a very linear, dump-and-chase style of hockey, unlike the Soviets and Europeans, who played an artistic, very free-flowing system built on finesse, speed, conditioning, and overlapping movements. Most of all, team chemistry. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. And when we come back, the miracle on the ice in 1980, the 1980 Olympic Games... When we continue. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's 1980 performance. Brooks was calling for a revolution in American hockey. I tried to develop a team that would throw their game right back at them. But first, Brooks would have to get his players to start thinking as a team, which wouldn't be easy. How's it looking? A lot of guys from Minnesota and Boston. Let's go! The rivalry between the University of Minnesota and Boston University was one of the fiercest in all of college hockey. Well, how about it, boys? Look like hockey to you? You want to settle old scores, you're on the wrong team. As much as I was a Boston hockey player and I had pride in my roots as a Boston hockey player, I had an enemy, and my enemy was the University of Minnesota. And the Boston guys, you know, we thought we were pretty savvy, and, you know, there were guys that didn't lock their doors or left their wallets out in plain sight. We thought, you know, these guys are a bunch of hicks from the cow pastures. I wanted to blur the, the boundaries of our country, build a we and an us and ourselves as opposed to an I, me, myself. Our spirit was going to be a big asset. And you can't have that type of thing if you have pockets of individuals and that there's not those team-building exercises throughout the year. To fill the most important role, Brooks picked 22-year-old Boston University goaltender Jim Craig, the man who would backstop history. You know, people I speak to say Craig's game has been off since his mom died. <laughs> they were seeing when his game's on. Craig was recovering from the recent death of his mother, Margaret, to cancer. Starting in August of 79, Brooks began employing his main team-building exercise, beginning a rugged six-month pre-Olympic training program with a strategy. You know, maybe if they hit him, they won't have time to hit each other. To bond them as a team, his players needed one common enemy. I'll be your coach. Him. I won't be your friend if you need one of those. I remember when he told us, I'll be a coach, but I won't be a friend. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be a long year. He quoted in the paper that I had a million dollar set of legs and a 10 cent fart for a brain. He'd give you that glare and that look, and it's like, oh my God, what did I do wrong now? I can honestly say that uh, there was no sense of regionalism on that team. There was a sense of Herbieism. Brooks didn't just put up a wall between himself and the team. He threw in a moat and alligators too. I need you to stick tight with these kids. One of the first things Herb told his assistant coach, Craig Patrick, was, I'm going to be tough on them, and you are going to have to be the one who keeps everyone together. Okay. It was an elaborate and flawlessly constructed game of good cop, bad cop. He would later call it his loneliest year in hockey. 
Here's Coach Brooks. A lot of these guys being college All-Americans, they were never pushed like that, never pulled. And I wasn't trying to put greatness into anybody. I was trying to pull it out, pull it out way up here. And I don't like coaches that try to put it in because they think they've got all the answers. But you got to believe in them, uh, have high standards uh, of them, and pull it out. And my favorite coach, John Wooden right here, I think he would concur with that. As September arrived, it was time to start playing against future Olympic competition. So Brooks took the team to Europe for a series of exhibition games. Before a game against Norway, a team they would have to face at the Olympics, he issued a challenge. I said, guys, we're going to have to play the Norwegians in qualifications. So we do it tonight. We send a message right now. But playing flat and uninspired hockey, the U.S. could only muster a 3-3 tie against a team they should have trounced. Brooks was furious. You guys don't want to work during the game? No problem. We'll work now. Go line. He's standing there with his suit on. And he makes us all get behind the net and on the goal line. He starts blowing his whistle. And we did what are called herbies, which are blue line back, red line back, far blue line back, all the way down and back. Think you can win on talent alone? Gentlemen, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. Again. Two or three of those would be tiring. Blue line back, red line back, blue line back, down and back. Ten or twelve of them would be excessive. You better think about something else, each and every one of you. When you pull on that jersey, you represent yourself and your teammates. And a name on the front is a hell of a lot more important than the one on the back. Get that through your head. Again. And we did them for about... 45 minutes to an hour, the rink attendant turned the lights off on us and we still skated in the dark. In the dark, he's screaming at us. Booming voice around this empty arena. How about it, Silky? You gonna be the first one to quit on me? It was pretty intense. The message went out right then. They're not gonna play the game like that and disgrace their abilities or our collective efforts. That moment probably had more to do with us gelling as a team, feeling like we were a group, a family. We looked at each other and said, you know, basically he can do anything he wants to us. He's not going to break us. The following night, the teams played again. The United States won 9-0. to zero. But there were still six cuts to be made, and Brooks was making it clear that no one was safe. Not even the team captain. You better start putting the puck in the net, Rizzo, or you're not going anywhere. Here's team captain Mike Arruzzioni. Two weeks before the Olympic Games, he calls me and he's going to cut me from the team. You're not good enough. You shouldn't be here. I never should have taken you. I'm going to send you back. Don't think I won't do it. And I'm thinking, he might just do this. <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow. The word got down that Arruzzioni's job was in jeopardy. So everyone said, if he'll cut the captain, where do I stand? Which is exactly what Brooks wanted. Timmy! What's he doing here? Hey, you guys know he's Turning the screws even tighter, he brought in new players for tryouts just weeks before the Olympics, provoking the same fear in his players that Brooks himself experienced in 1960 when he was cut from the Olympic team at the last minute. But this was a new generation of player, and they'd had enough. Assistant coach Craig Patrick approached Brooks on the team bus. Herb, some of the boys want to have a word. Here's defenseman. Jack O'Callaghan. 
And I said, you know, Herb, I don't think you should do it. I think it's wrong. We're going to Lake Placid in a week. I mean, stop it. Get rid of these guys and let us get serious about this. And I was looking for that moment where their cohesiveness and strength of association was such a strong bond. And then I would just cut the cord. And that was the moment. Brooks sent the late additions back home. He trimmed the roster to 20 and kept his captain. Herb never did anything on a whim. He planned. And I think he felt that maybe this was the last test to see how close these players really are. Twelve Olympic team members were from Minnesota, four were from Boston, and two apiece were from Wisconsin and Michigan. Yeah. But just days before the Olympics, the Americans had one more test to take. Well, I still don't know why you scheduled this, Herb, but get your guys to New York. They've got a game to play. On February 9th, 1980, at Madison Square Garden in New York City, they skated onto the ice to play an exhibition game just three days before the start of the Olympics. But to their opponents on this night, it wasn't just an exhibition. The Soviets had just recently embarrassed the NHL All-Stars, the best of the best, defeating them six to nothing. But before the game, Brooks told his team to go out and have fun have fun? Brooks himself later described the Garden Game as a ploy. He said, what could possibly be gained by playing the Soviets tough and waking them up? We got crushed and we thought, these guys are in another world. They just kicked us around that rink. The goals they scored were, you could have filmed them, they were so beautiful. They were like robots. When they scored a goal, they never smiled. I don't think I ever saw them smile. We were about ready to stand up and applaud him. We didn't see anything like that before. You know, guys hitting elbow. Did you see that goal? Did you see his move? It's like, we were spectators. I looked up at the scoreboard. It said 10 to 3. It might as well have said 20 to nothing. 10-3 made it sound closer than it was. It was no contest. There couldn't have been a greater low point, given the preparation and the, and the work that we had put in. It was very demoralizing. As each team left New York City and headed five and a half hours north to Lake Placid, their future seemed clear. Here's ABC's 1980 Olympic hockey announcer, Al Michaels. Anybody who left Madison Square Garden that day thought to themselves, the Soviets will win every game in the Olympics, take home the gold medal, and never be challenged. And the U.S., all you knew is that when it came time to face the Big Bear, they had no chance. As discouraging as the loss to the Soviets was, it was not something on the minds of Americans. Throughout 1979, as the hockey team was preparing to compete in the Olympics, Americans at large were also competing with the harsh realities of everyday life. Here again is Michael Ruzioni. Look at the economy. Look how much money we're paying for gas. Inflation was absolutely ridiculous. People just didn't feel good about the United States. A lot of people wondered where we were headed. And more on this great story from Lake Placid, New York, 1980, our Olympic hockey team. The story continues after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. We continue with the story of the U.S. Olympic hockey team's miracle on ice in Lake Placid in 1980. And then, in November, just when things seemed like they couldn't get any worse... This is NBC Nightly News. They did. With Jessica Savage. Good evening. The American embassy in Tehran is in the hands of Muslim students tonight. Spurred on by an anti-American speech by the Ayatollah Khomeini, they stormed the embassy and took dozens of American hostages. On November 4th, which was a really rainy day, a hundred or so Iranian students climbed over the walls of the U.S. Embassy, yelling Magbar Amrika, death to America. In a few seconds, uh, the door was knocked down, and Iranians with automatic weapons uh, stood right in front of me and uh, held them against my head. This morning, for the first time... Barry Rosen and 51 other Americans would be held hostage in Iran for the next 444 days. They would come into our cells and hold us up against the wall and use an automatic weapon and count from 10 to 1 just to scare us. Iran's Ayatollah taunted and mocked President Jimmy Carter. Carter tries to frighten us on the economic front. He does not have the military courage to attack us. It was a constant nightly embarrassment to all Americans to see our influence in the world seemingly ebbing away. Every night on the evening news, they'd burn an American flag for us. We were not feeling very good about ourselves. In December, it would get even worse. Day 54 in Iran, and while there has been no significant change in the hostage situation, there has been a major development in the country next door to Iran, Afghanistan. During the last three days, more than 5,000 Soviet combat troops have been airlifted into Kabul. Up to another 50,000 Soviet troops have massed along Afghanistan's northern border. As one administration official said privately, this is the grossest piece of international behavior in some time. The period after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was uh, one of the tensest periods of the entire Cold War. It was always a potentially dangerous situation that if it ever had gotten out of control would have meant the end of the world as we knew it. It's very important for the world to realize how serious a threat the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is. The Cold War was getting colder by the day and with the Soviets on American soil they were encouraged to see the American press blaming America for the world's woes. Newspapers were full of articles like blaming Americans for everything. So an attitude for the entire Olympic team, let's show them who we are. Let's show them who are the greatest. Let's show them who are the strongest. And let's show them on their soil. The Winter Olympics began on February 12, 1980. No one was expecting a showdown between the Americans and the Soviets. Not even the team captain. Here again is Mike Ruzioni. I know you guys are really facing a Herculean task here. Uh, it's like sending you into the lion's cage. Do you feel like that? Uh, yes, we do. You know, you got to be realistic about things. We're, we're a young team. We're the youngest Olympic hockey team ever. If you had to pick us, I think it would probably be picked fifth. The Soviets blew out their first two opponents with a combined score of 33-4. to 4. The seventh-seeded Americans opened against the heavily favored Sweden and trailed 2-1 to one late in the final third period. Here again is Al Michaels. I remember the U.S. had several opportunities to tie the game, and you just got the feeling, and of course as the clock ticks down and now you're under a minute, 
Well, it's it's not to be. With only 41 seconds to go, Brooks pulled goalie Jim Craig, which allowed him to put an extra skater on the ice. But in return, it also left the American net empty. It was a desperate move for a desperate team. He was just trying to get it on net. And I couldn't believe it when it went in, you know. You can always wonder if Billy doesn't score, what happens to the hockey team? Well, Billy did score. That was the biggest goal of the Olympics because if the Americans lose that game, they're virtually out of contention before the Olympic Games start. Two days later, the Americans faced Czechoslovakia, underdogs again, in a game they had to win. Many people said that the Czechs were considered the second best team in the world and the only team that had a chance to beat the Soviets. Well, we pretty much dominated the Czechs. Then late in the third period, as the Americans were skating to a 7-3 Valentine's Day massacre victory against the second best team in the world, Mark Johnson, the team's star player, was knocked to the ice from a cheap shot by a Czech player. As Johnson lay in the middle of the ice, Americans watching on television were introduced to Herb Brooks, up close and personal. I'm going to take this stick and I'm going to stuff it down your throat. People were ready to hear that kind of thing. He would not have sat back and let the Ayatollah stomp all over the U.S. while holding a bunch of hostages. I think that was one of the moments where a lot of people in this country said, hey, we've got a pretty good little story taking place here. We have these fresh-faced kids, got to keep an eye on these guys. And look at this coach. I mean, he's right there, backing his players. So everybody's starting to look ahead to this prospective matchup against the Soviets. But before that, you have three other games. Norway figured to be the easiest of the games, and it was. There is Pavlich who gets it back to Selk, who scores! Davy Selk from Mark Pavlich. Then you had Romania. Breskov, he scores! and they won that game. Germany presented a little bit of a problem, though, on, on Wednesday night, the last game prior to going into the medal round. Germany leads 2-0. So wait a second, what's going on here? You, you don't want this bump in the road. You don't want it now. And then the U.S. was able to come from behind and beat Germany. So they did all of the things they had to do. But then, of course, you had the specter of the, the Soviets just looming there. Seemingly no one, certainly not a bunch of college kids, could stop them from winning the gold medal. Herb Brooks, after all, wasn't coaching a dream team. He was coaching a team full of dreamers. There's a big difference. Today, the concept of amateurs in the Olympics is as obsolete as eight-track cassettes. The expression dream team has become part of the five-ring lexicon. Herb Brooks would later see the dream team as ironic because when you have dream teams, 
you seldom get to dream. But this was a game of striking contrasts. It was experience versus youth, men versus boys, champions versus upstarts, communism versus capitalism, all on a sheet of ice in the Adirondack Mountains. After studying the Soviets for years, Herb Brooks could sense their overconfidence and told his team to take advantage of it. I kept whetting their appetite. Someone will beat those guys. Someone's going to beat those guys. I don't like how they're playing. They think they're better than they are. Brooks also thought his team was giving too much respect to the Soviets. So he began chipping away at their mystique by poking fun at their leader, one of the top players in the world, who just happened to look a lot like a famous comedian. Boris Mikhailov was as close to, I mean, the hockey chief of the world as there was. And Herbie starts teasing the guy all week. Look at that guy's nose. God, look at that guy's face. Looks like Stan Laurel. And he's insulting the guy. Ha ha ha. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake, guys. Piece of cake, guys. And when we come back, our final segment, The Miracle in Lake Placid in 1980. The U.S. Olympic hockey team, their story continues here on Our American Stories. American stories and we continue with our final segment in this hour-long celebration of the United States Olympic hockey team's remarkable performance in Lake Placid in 1980. Can't play against Stan Laurel. Piece of cake guys. To relax them, to keep them focused and also plan that and say hey someone's gonna beat those son of a guns. Then on Friday, February 22nd, the Cold War was put on ice. The 13th Winter Olympic Games. The excitement, the tension building, the Olympic Center filling to capacity. In the locker room before the game, Herb Brooks gave the speech of his life. You were born to be hockey players. He told us we were born to be a player. You were meant, we were meant to be, be here. here. This moment Tonight. was ours. This is your time. And he told that story about going up and spitting in the eye of the tiger. If this is our time, this it's not their time. This is your time. Screw them, Stan Laurel, all those Russians. Now go out there and take it. It's our turn. And I remember a telegram we got from a lady in Texas. And all the telegram said was, beat those commie You realized that the USA on the front of your sweater meant that you were playing One, for your two, country. Three. USA! Here we go as the game is underway. The Soviet Union in red and the United States in white. I remember for the first five or six minutes, feeling as though I couldn't feel my feet on the ice. The Soviets struck first. And it was deflected in. And the Soviet Union leads one to nothing at the 9-12 mark of the first period. The Russians scored first, and you winced and thought, here it comes. But the U.S. team took that blow. Craig made some key saves. And then Buzzy Schneider came down the left wing. Up ahead to Schneider. 
The tying goal failed to unnerve the Soviets. They quickly scored again, and it looked like the first period would end with them leading 2-1. to one. But with just seconds remaining, the methodical team that almost never made mistakes made the worst kind, a mental error, and it changed the course of the game. David Christian has the puck. It's about five seconds left to go in the period. I start to skate to the bench thinking the period's over. I remember seeing Mark Johnson go scooting up. Like, he just didn't stop playing. He was still playing. The Russians had stopped. And made it one to nothing. Long shot, the easy save by Treniak, but Johnson is there and scores with one second to play in the period. Right now, the, the Soviets aimed to fix that mistake in the second period, quickly scoring the go-ahead goal. They dominated the action, outshooting the Americans 11 to 2 in the second period. Only Jim Craig's brilliance and goal prevented the game from becoming a blowout. But the Americans had never come from behind the best team in the world. And the Soviets always dominated the third and final period. It looked as if this night would be no different. That is, until lightning struck. Just 81 seconds later, the team's captain, whose name in Italian means eruption, triggered one. And that's when the building went crazy. I mean, that's when sound had feel. I mean, that was like an earthquake. Now we've got Bedlam. Oh, I love Brooks' reaction. Here it is again. The atmosphere in that arena was incredible. The, the feeling, the sense that they could do this, that they could actually pull it off. That goal coming at the 10-minute mark, exactly halfway through the period. When I sat on, I looked up and I went, 10 minutes. That's a long time against these guys. They could score in 10 minutes what would take us 60 minutes to score, and I knew that. Too much time, too much time. We can't hold them off this long. It was just a constant clock watch, shift by shift, shift by shift. It went on forever. I mean, time just stood still. Five and a half minutes to play. 3.53 remaining in the game. 2.25, 2.24, 2 remaining. It kept building and building, and the clock kept winding down. And it just got louder and louder. 55 seconds, but they come up as the puck. 28 seconds, the crowd going insane. Carlemont. McClanahan is there, the puck is still loose. 11 seconds, you've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. The entire U.S. bench cleared. Everyone except Coach Brooks. After throwing both arms overhead and doing a tiny pirouette and punching the air with an emphatic left fist, he walked straight off the bench, turned right into the runway, got patted on the back by weepy state troopers, and went back into locker room five. Herb Brooks locked himself inside an orange toilet stall and cried. Once the team made it into the locker room, they broke into a spontaneous chorus of God Bless America, filling in the words they couldn't remember with hums and whistles. In Lake Placid and all over the United States, the victory triggered an outpouring of national emotion never before provoked by a sporting event. On the Iron Range in Minnesota, people ran outside and hollered and shot off guns. In the Mediterranean Sea, the USS Nimitz 
one of the world's largest supercarriers, flashed the score to a Soviet intelligence ship that was nearby. The Soviets would not lose again for five years, and the Americans would not beat them for another 11 years. But the future domination came with no rewind mechanism, no clause that could undo what happened on Friday night, February 22, 1980. It was the 13th anniversary of the film debut of Walt Disney's Cinderella. Maybe it figured. The nation continued celebrating, but for the hockey team, it wasn't over yet. People always forget that the U.S. had to win another game on Sunday. It was still possible. If the Americans did not beat the Finns, that they would not only not win the gold, they wouldn't win any medal at all. And Herb understood this. And we were excited, we were anxious, we couldn't wait to get out and play. And Herb Brooks walked into the locker room, and he looked at us and he said, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your f grave. And he stopped, he walked a couple of steps, turned, looked at us again, and said, you f grave. Once again, the Americans would have to come from behind. And we went out there in the third period, and I think we just steamrolled them from the time they opened that door and let us out. They didn't have a chance. Three unanswered goals in the third period gave the U.S. a 4-2 win and the gold medal. The Olympics broke Herb Brooks' heart in 1960 and made him the most celebrated American hockey coach in history two decades later. But on August 11th, 2003, in a single car accident, a little bit of the Lake Placid miracle died with Herbert Paul Brooks on the hot, hard asphalt of Interstate 35 in Forest Lake, Minnesota. As his casket descended down the steps of Assumption Catholic Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, it passed under a curved canopy of hockey sticks raised up by his 1980 gold medal team. Many of those holding sticks were fighting tears and losing the fight. If Herb Brooks' passing reminds us that human beings have a shelf life, it also reminds us that miracles do not. And this miracle didn't happen on accident. I see Neil Broughton skating on a flooded rink in Roseau, Minnesota, that his father got up at 2 a.m. to make in 25 degree below zero weather. I see John Harrington's late father Charles skipping overtime at work to watch his kids' games, because his overtime would always be there, but the games would not. And then see him years later listening to John skate against the Russians from the cab of his locomotive. I envision Margaret Craig running her goaltender son and all her other kids all over southeastern Massachusetts, a devotion that was absolutely unstinting until her cigarette habit caught up to her and cancer arrived. Behind every player, there are stories of love and sacrifice and struggle. Life is hard, and Olympic gold medals provide no exemption. You push on, do your best, and if you are really brave, you dream big. Doubts and fears be damned. This is the stuff that miracles are made of, and the proof was there to see on February 22nd, 1980. And great job on that as always, Greg. And I'll never forget that day. I don't, if you were around, you didn't either. 
you knew where you were. There are some events where you just remember where you were. When I was at Paul Biatini's house, co-captain of my team, one of my dearest friends, died in the World Trade Center, visiting an insurance company on the 100th floor. And what a day that was. The celebration everywhere. And we weren't hockey fans. There had to be 35 to 40 of us at the Biatini's. We all got called in through the quarters. We were calling each other's houses. And then we all got together for that final period. Not a quarter. Clearly, I'm not a hockey fan. But in the third period, everybody gathered at the Biatini's for the final round. This is Lee Habib. A great hockey story. The greatest hockey story here on our American Stories. The 1980 Dream Team. The real Dream Team. The U.S. Olympic Hockey Team.